Confused by finances, investing, estate and retirement planning? Well, I went to school so you don't have to. Welcome to Finances And with Kathy and Jennifer. Welcome to Finances and Listener Questions. I'm Jennifer and I'm here with Kathy. And this week we're answering some of your submitted questions. We're going to cover questions about insurance, emergency funds, budgets, and more. We are actually very excited about it. We were talking last week about things that people had been asking us about. And then, of course, that led us to some other things that we had been thinking about. So we're very excited to get to this very first listener questions. Mm -hmm. So first one is, what's the best auto insurance? I was talking to someone named Dennis at Erie Insurance, and he said it's not uncommon for people to kind of get hung up on taking only your state mandated minimum on a policy to save a few hundred dollars. His suggestion, though, is not to take the minimums. And let me just remind you what things are covered in those minimums. There's liability for injuries and damages to the person outside of a vehicle is part of what it will cover. And there's liability for injuries and damages to the persons inside the insured vehicle and the cost to repair or replace a damaged or stolen vehicle. So those are the the three big things. When we talk about insurance, we're talking about splits, and you might hear of a split like 30, 60, 15. And I know we talked about this before, but I'm just going to be real quick about it. The the 30 means 30,000, the 60 means 60,000, and the 15 means 15,000. And so what that covers is the very first number in my example of 30 would be the per person bodily injury limit. So the most that it would pay out is $30,000 on a per person bodily injury limit. So for people, it's going to be 30,000 per person. The second number, which in my example was 60,000, is the per occurrence bodily injury limit. Now, in my example, because 60 is only twice of 30, it wouldn't pay out. If there were four people injured, there would just be a total of 60 paid out. So I guess they'd have to split that amongst the four of them if that's how they're going to do it. And the last number is the property damage per occurrence limit. So again, in my example, it was 15, which means there's a $15,000 limit on that. So what does that mean? It means that if somebody is injured, you're only going to get $30,000 and up to $60,000 for each accident you have, and a $15,000 limit. But think about it. $15,000 is not going to cover the cost of your car if your car costs thirty dollars to $50,000 to buy it. So you're going to want to make sure you have enough in that last number to cover the cost of your car. His suggestion is two hundred and fifty. dollars 500 and 100. So what does that mean? It means you have $250,000 per person per accident, $500,000 maximum paid out in total for the people's injuries and $100,000 for your vehicle. Now, that would include your vehicle and other property damage as well, but just so you're thinking about what I don't want to have the minimum, even if my state says it's the least I have to have. And maybe you do. Maybe saving that couple hundred dollars a month is what you need to do right now. And maybe the vehicle you're driving does not require you to have more than that. But be aware that there are reasons for these different dollar limits. That collision repair, repair car, if you're involved with another car or an object like a tree, and comprehensive is going to repair or replace if your car is stolen or damaged, but not in a collision. And that might look like a fire or vandalism or hail. Now, one of the things that you can do is buy an umbrella policy. And you can get a million dollar umbrella policy for about $200. And that's going to cover 
up to a million dollars over your insurance. So my first question to him was, well, why do I want to get higher coverage limits if my umbrella will cover up to higher dollar limits? And what he said was that if you don't have appropriate underlying coverage, in other words, if you bought the minimum and then try to use your umbrella, they might not honor that umbrella. So there's an expectation that you're buying an appropriate amount of coverage. So if you have a Sorry, I can't even think of a fancy car, but a fancy car that costs $80,000 and then you only get the $15,000 coverage for it, the umbrella might very well say, no, you should have had higher coverage for that vehicle. Hmm, Interesting. So our next question is also related to car insurance, and that is, should I make a claim each time something happens to my car? Because... Well, isn't that why I have insurance? But not necessarily. So if you experience something like hail damage or a small accident, should you file a claim for that? Well, all claims made on a policy, no matter how many different vehicles you have, within three years can bring into question your deductible. So if you make two claims in three years where you are at fault, then this can be a cause for non-renewal of your policy. In these cases, you may want to try to pay out of pocket if you can. If your insurance is canceled or it's not renewed, then it can be very hard to get new insurance or you're going to be paying for a very expensive plan. So some typical reasons for that might be a bad driving record, having DUI or a DWI, being delinquent on your payments or fraudulent claims, too many at-fault accidents or too many claims could cause you to have to have a very expensive plan. I know somebody who wasn't paying attention at a light and the car ahead of them started to go, but didn't actually go. And they bonked into the back of them. And the driver of that car in front of them got out and just said, you know what? I've had this happen to me in the past. I know how much it is to replace my bumper. If you give me this amount, which was like $500, then I'll get the bumper replaced and you don't have to use any insurance on it. And at the time, I thought that seemed a little sketchy. But you know, the more I know about insurance, she probably was doing a favor to that person so that they didn't have to you know, go against their claim to get that $500, which depending on whatever their deductible was, they would have paid for that anyway. And then there wasn't this going against their claim. So mm-hmm. probably was a good idea. Yeah. The next question is, can you recession proof your portfolio? And so again, your portfolio is going to include cash, any bonds that you have and any stocks. And again, stocks are when you're buying a piece of the company, bonds are when you're lending money to the company and they're going to repay you for that. U.S. bonds are considered safe. U.S. bonds are safe because they're considered risk-free. Risk-free because the government has never defaulted on any of their bonds. If there's falling inflation, in other words, inflation is going down, it doesn't generally eat away at your fixed payments that you're getting. So you're going to continue to get those fixed payments. But if interest rates rise and new bonds are issued... Bonds, they move opposite of stocks. So when the interest rate goes up, stocks tend to make you a lot more money and bonds tend to make you less. In reverse, if you have, if interest rate starts to go down, the bonds often are more attractive and the, the stocks are paying you less interest rate. Stocks with dividends can help in a recession because they're often less volatile than non-dividend stocks. It's not a guarantee, but it's just something to think about. And then finally, what sectors you're investing in. And so what that means is what sort of bucket or basket are you getting your stocks from? So if you're buying all 
If you're buying all Apple, Microsoft, those kind of tech companies, then that's different than being broadly diversified where you want to have some tech stocks, some utilities, some telecoms like Verizon, some healthcare. And the reality is that even in a a bad market or a recession, those kinds of things, those sectors like consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, and telecoms, they tend to be the most recession-proof because people still need those services like food and medicine and electricity and internet. So those are the kinds of things that if you're thinking, I might want to look at buying some other things during a recession, those are some the sectors that you might want to be looking at. And doesn't this also have to do with like your age during the recession or during the time? You know, if you're close to retirement, then you're going to be recession proofing your portfolio differently than somebody who is not, right? Uh, I would say if you're close to retirement, you want to start moving things into bonds anyways, or cash, things that you can very easily get money out in the next five years. And it doesn't have to even be retirement. Let's say you want to buy a home for the first time. You want to have, you don't want to have your, all the money that you're hoping to buy your first home with in stocks. And because you're going to buy it within like three to five years, because if the stocks go down, then there goes your big dream. So you want to be able to save that money in something safer. Bonds are safe, but they're not going to make a lot of money. But it kind of doesn't matter in that moment. If you have almost enough money to buy that house, you want to put it somewhere safe so that even though it will grow less, possibly, it's still going to be there when you want to go buy that house. So it's it's available to you. And both of those are similar, right? Your retirement, you're going to want that money when it's time to retire because you certainly don't want to say, I'm retiring next year, and then find out you can't retire next year. Like Mm -hmm. that, That must be miserable. Definitely. I'm betting that a lot of our listeners are probably working from home right now. Um, Mm -hmm. So our next question is, can I deduct my home office during COVID? Which is a really interesting question. You can only deduct space specifically dedicated to your work. So that means you can't deduct office space if you're working at your kitchen table. So if that's your office space right now, then you certainly can't deduct that. However, only independent contractors can deduct home office space anyway, not those of us that are just working from home currently. It would be worth asking your company if they will pay or provide any of your equipment that you need to do your job at home. They might provide a stand-up desk, dual monitors, a comfy chair, any of those things help with your work at home office. Teachers still can claim up to $250 um, against their taxes as long as you have receipts. So if you've spent your $250 this year, teachers, on new monitors or a stand-up desk or a combination of those things, you will still be able to use that against your taxes. So what are capital gains? Basically, capital gains are when you sell an asset or a stock or bond or other items like that for more than you paid for it. That is called a capital gain. That could be stocks, bonds, precious metals, jewelry, and real estate. All of those fall into the category of when you sell it, if you make if you make money on it, then that is a capital gain. And you're going to be claiming that on your taxes. And that's why it's important. What you want to consider is how long have you had that asset before you sold it? So is it a short-term gain or a long-term gain? Short-term gains are gain, uh, items that you've held for less than a year. And you can claim a long-term gain if you've held that item for one year and one day. So short-term is taxed at your marginal income rate. Marginal income rate is just what you're paying your taxes on, your ordinary tax rate based on your income. So your adjusted gross income. So when you're looking at how much tax you owe, your 
probably using a, either a person to solve that for you or something like TurboTax, but it's taking out the things it can deduct. It's taking into account how much money you made, and it's going to come up with a dollar amount, which is your adjusted gross income. And then based on what your income is, that adjusted gross income, it's going to say, oh, well, you owe 22% or 27% or whatever that calculation comes out to be. Now, why is that important? Because your ordinary tax rate can be anywhere between 10 and 37%, where if you're filing a long-term gain, you're only going to pay somewhere between zero and 20%. But in reality, you're probably going to pay 15%. That is the most common amount to have to pay. So let's look at this. If you're single and you're making up to $40,000 and you sell something, you're going to pay 0% on that long-term gain. If you are making somewhere between 40 and $441,000, you're going to only pay 15% on that long-term gain. If you're making more than $441,000, you're going to pay 20% on that. If you're a head of household, if you're making up to $53,600, you're going to pay 0% on your long-term gain. Again, the bulk of people are going to fall between this number, which is at 15% uh, long-term gain, which is $53,601 or $469,050. If you're making more than that, that's when you would pay the 20%. Married filing jointly to pay the 15% long-term gain, you would be making somewhere between $80,000 and $496,600. Now, in comparison, if you are in that lowest rate that was paying 0% for a long-term gain, for a short-term gain, you would actually pay 12%. So you go from paying 0% on the long-term to 12% on a short-term gain, which is something you've owned less than a year. If you're in that middle category that was paying 15%, you're going to pay probably 22% based on gross income, on your gross income, adjusted gross income. And if you're in that highest column where you were paying 20%, which again is way over $400,000, you'd be paying 35% on your short-term gain. So if you can hold something for a year and a day, you're going to save a lot of money on your taxes. How much should I have in my emergency fund? Well, your emergency emergency funds are meant to plan for an unexpected need for money. Think of it like a flotation device on a boat. You don't want to need it, but if you do, you'll be grateful that you planned. An emergency fund is great to be prepared for unexpected large expenses, like if your AC or your heater suddenly breaks, or if you lose your job. Um, you could put um, these sudden expenses on a credit card or take out a short-term loan, but an emergency fund will help you avoid debt in a situation like that. It's commonly suggested to keep about three to six months of your pay in an emergency fund. Now, you don't want all of that cash just sitting in your normal savings account earning about 25 cents a year. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) consider opening a high-yield savings account that will allow you to gain as much interest as possible on your money. And make sure you you choose an account that allows you to access your money whenever you need it without penalties or fees, because you don't want to put your emergency fund money in something like a CD or other locked account that you can't access for a certain number of years. It needs to be easily accessible. So you can actually go to NerdWallet. They have a calculator where you can enter your monthly expenses and it will help you figure out how much your goal should be to put in your emergency fund. And once you figure out that goal, you might realize, wow, that's a big number because six months could be quite a lot that you're trying to save for. So some ways to help you reach that goal would be to save your tax return. 
for something like this. It's a good idea to pay yourself first. So like when you get your paycheck, go ahead and take out whatever amount you've planned for and go ahead and put that in the emergency fund right away so that you don't spend it on something else. Cut out other things to save for this fund. You know, the nerd wallet calculator, I mm-hmm. I really I went ahead and stuck some numbers in there to try it. They called it the nerd wallet emergency savings calculator. They asked for seven or eight things. One was your rent or mortgage, how much you're paying currently in utilities, your phone bill, your current insurance bills, what transportation costs you have. So that could be riding the metro or it could be, you know, paying for gas and and your car itself, any loans that you owed any food that you buy on a monthly basis, and then anything else that you feel like you need. So if you think you have to have your, I don't know, gym membership, then include that in there as well. And then it's going to calculate out how much you need to start planning to put away so that you can have that buffer. And again, having that emergency fund, that's the whole point of it. You are planning to have an emergency, which nobody wants to plan, but once you have it, it's an emergency if you don't have money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes we fail to act on this because it sounds like it's too much money to even be able to save. So if that's if that's you, then again, like just start small and even celebrate every time you, you know, save a thousand dollars. Dave Ramsey suggests this amount and he also reminds us that an emergency is unexpected, necessary. And urgent. What is a high yield savings account? So it pays more interest than a, t- a traditional savings account does, but it's going to have some requirements because they're going to give you more money. They're going to hold on to your money or lock you into some things. And some of those things are the interest rate. It's going to be a great interest rate, but you need to check is that interest rate only for a short period of time? Maybe it's only a higher interest rate for three months and then it goes down to a lower interest rate. They might also require an initial deposit, a certain dollar amount. And so you have to make sure, are you comfortable with putting that amount of money in the account and or do you have that amount of money? There is often a minimum balance required. And so If for some reason you need to pull money out of that account because you're going to be buying something, if it moves you below that minimum, that minimum dollar amount, the interest rate might disappear also. So again, you want to make sure that you understand all the stipulations of using this high yield savings account. Can you link your specific account to your other banks so that you can put money in easily? Or as you start to grow it, can you take some money out easily? Can you withdraw from it? Is there dollar amounts you have to withdraw? Is there a minimum? Is there some sort of an ATM that comes with it? Can you use an uh, app to deposit or do you need to get a physical bank? Because sometimes physical banks are much more challenging to get to. And then how is the interest compounded? So this is an important thing. Are they going to look at adding up your interest daily, monthly, quarterly, annually, semi-annually? What you're looking for instead of that interest, instead of thinking, oh, it's 3% interest, you want to look at the APY, which stands for the annual percentage yield, and you want to compare the APY from one account to another, because that takes into account how often it's compounded and what that really means for you instead of just a you know, a percentage, they're going to take into account the, the timing that's involved in that as well. Did you find any common, um, common like interest rates? Like you mentioned 3%. Were there any others that stuck out that you noticed? I honestly did not search for any current interest rates for it. I just grabbed that number. But the things that we're listing here about minimums and initial deposit amounts, those are pretty common amongst these accounts. So you just want to make sure that you're aware of how you can get money out of it and how much you're going to need to put into it to earn that interest. 
And like almost anything, buying a home or buying a car, you can find all kinds of interest rates. The higher the interest rate, the more often you're going to have some requirements or more strenuous requirements because they want to make sure you're not taking the money out if they're going to pay you a higher interest rate. They're looking to keep your money for a while. All right. How do I stick to my budget? This is a question that I need to think about myself. (laughs) So number one, set realistic expectations. If you found that you spent $500 in food last month, don't make your goal for this month $50 in food. That's not really a realistic expectation. So even though you want to save money and you want to stick to your budget, still keep your own realistic plans in mind. You know, I love that idea. At least hearing you talk about that made me think about when you're exercising and lifting weights, for example, Mm -hmm. they recommend going up no more than 10% a week. So if you're lifting, you know, 20 pounds right now, go to 22 pounds next week, but don't try to do it the next day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to make that budget, instead of going from 500 to 50, maybe take 10% out of that. And so knock that $50 off. And instead of going from 500 to 50, go from 500 to 450 and see if you can live within it and take those small baby steps. You can still put that $50 away towards whatever you're going to, you know, whatever account you're trying to save for, but it's not going to be so dramatic where you feel like, I can't do this because it's so punishing. Mm -hmm. Another way to stick to your budget, I know that food is a big budget item. So planning your meals can help you out a lot with your budget. When you plan your meals ahead of time and make a grocery list, then you're less likely to buy junk or unneeded items when you're at the grocery store. Meal prepping is also really helpful because then you're less likely to stop and buy fast food or snacks on the way home if you know you have a healthy meal already prepared. You also want to think about when you're planning your meals, look at what food you already have in the house and then build recipes from that instead of just looking up new recipes and then going out and buying a bunch of complicated ingredients. There's a lot of of money that could be saved when you're planning and thinking about the food that you're eating during the week. I love that idea of, you know, shopping at your house first to make your groceries, but you can add on to that even is ordering your groceries online. So figure out what you have in the house, what ingredients, can I make that thing? Oh, I need this one thing. Order stuff online. I order my food online 75% of the time now and just figure out what I need for the week or whatever recipes are coming up. And then when I go pick it up, they're giving it to me. I'm not tempted by anything because they're actually bringing the food to my car. So that's another way maybe to think about try to start saving money. And if you, you know, once you're done shopping at your house, which I love that idea, then you can then supplement it by buying the few things that you might need additionally. Yeah, that's good advice. Also, break up your budget into bite-sized amounts could help. So in other words, take your $800 food budget and break it up into $200 a week. And that will kind of help you stay on track as you go. Also, budget for birthday gifts and special dinners, events, all that stuff ahead of time. So it won't feel like this huge unexpected expense because you know it's coming. Like, you know when people's birthdays are, you know when these things are happening. And so if you are planning for it and thinking about it ahead of time, then it's going to feel less like this huge unexpected expense. The next thing is something that really speaks to me, which is decide if you really need something and put it off for a little while. Even if you Mm -hmm. put it off 24 hours, it is so easy, Amazon Prime Day, to think that you have to buy something right now. And instead, if you can say to yourself, yeah, I'm going to put it in my basket, right? You can still click on it. You can put it in your basket. But 
give it 24 hours to decide if you really need it. Now, if you're buying a gift for somebody that we're not talking about that, but just that whimminess of being able to buy something because you're getting a million emails, um, you know, from wherever it is you'd like to shop already anyways, just give it a little bit of time and see if it's something that you need or not. Yeah. You can also use cash to stick to your budget. It's hard to spend money if you don't have it. So it might be helpful to put away the credit card for a while and use cash, maybe even if it's just for certain budget items that you're having trouble sticking to. So if it is the food budget, then maybe you take that $200 out of cash and put it in your wallet. And that way, you know, when it's gone, you can't buy anymore. The next one is an accountability partner. And I I love the idea the first time I heard this, which was Norma, when she mentioned it on our budgeting podcast, she talked about somebody that she would call and say, do I need to get mulch this month? You know, because she was tempted to buy mulch. And I love that, especially if you're single, finding somebody else that is willing to at least listen a minute and talk you through whether it's a thing you really need or not. Because honestly, just having a conversation about it is often enough to make your own decision, but you've talked to somebody instead of just thinking about it in your head. Mm-hmm. Track your spending. Keep track of your receipts either in a spreadsheet or you can use an app like Mint or Every Dollar to track your spending and pay attention to this so that you can remind yourself when you need to rein in your spending. I know that I used this for a long time and it was super helpful. And then we got off track and stopped using it. And then we wondered like why we're why we're off of our budget. <laughs> it's because we're not looking at it anymore. So it's really important to track your spending and pay attention to it. And the last thing that we have today, Amy uh, had mentioned, and she was talking about a payroll tax holiday that might affect you. It depends on your company. Back in August, the IRS issued a notice allowing employers to suspend their withholdings and you're having to pay your Social Security payroll taxes as a way to help um, with COVID relief. So they let your employer know that if they wanted to not pay the Social Security taxes from your paycheck that they didn't have to, that that would give you a larger paycheck from September 1 to December 31. It does only apply to those people who make less than $4,000 biweekly, which works out to $104,000 a year. It's a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a lot of money. (laughs) So if you fall into that category of less than $104,000 a year, your employer may very well have not withheld your payroll taxes for Social Security. If your employer did this, then the IRS is expecting you to repay that amount that was withheld from January 1 to April 30, which means you're going to be paying your Social Security taxes that you owed from January 1 to April 30 and the taxes that you owed last year from September 1 to December 31. We're still in the middle of this. We've only had September pass and a little bit of October here. If you are one of those people, you are able to go to your payroll department and say you want them to go ahead and start withholding those taxes if that's something you want them to do. And you can do that by just checking to see if, if it's not being withheld, then ask them to go ahead and withhold it if that's what you want them to do. Otherwise, you're going to, like I said, be double dipping in 2021. Anything else? No, that was fun. (laughs) So thanks for listening to Finances and Listener Questions. We know you chose to listen today and we're grateful. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share and consider leaving us a review because it helps bring financial education to others and lets them find us more easily. 
Please let us know what questions you'd like answered by going to our website at financesand.net. You can now find infographics on those topics that we cover on our website and here in the show notes. Finances And does not provide tax or legal advice and nothing in this podcast is to be construed as such. Always consult a tax, accounting, or legal professional for advice on your specific situation. Remember, I went to school so you don't have to. Thank you.